Olive Branch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I interview Rowan Oudeh. Rowan is the managing director of New Story Leadership for the Middle East. Rowan, thank you very much for agreeing to be interviewed today uh, for our podcast and sharing your story with us. I wanted to begin by kind of asking you about your work with the New Story Leadership and what you guys do. Um, why did you get involved with the organization so our listeners can get a better idea of um, kind of your professional background? Well, Anwar, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and share my experiences and insights. So like you mentioned, I'm the director of New Story Leadership for the Middle East, and we focus on developing a community of young leaders from Israel and Palestine who each have their own tools and skill sets to create social, political, and economic change in the region. Our programming focuses on teaching Palestinians and Israelis who are political activists on how to tell their stories and bring those stories into the rooms where decisions are made about them without them. So through leadership programs in Washington, D.C. or online programs, we connect them with decision makers, Congress members, ambassadors, and teach them the strategies of how to infuse diplomacy with activism using personal stories. I got involved with New Story Leadership as a participant, actually. Um, at the time, I was living in Hawada in a village in Area C of the West Bank. And after my brother was arrested by the Israeli army, I went to my community and my family and relatives and said, how can we mobilize and organize, set up interviews about what had happened? And I was really shocked to see like the fear that my community had about being politically active. You know, my family was like, we, we don't want to do anything or say anything. We don't want to get arrested or what happens with our profile. And it really pushed me to think, wow, we're, we're conditioned to be silenced because of the occupation and because of the way our own institutions have suppressed our voices. So I went on this search hunt to find an organization that would give my voice a platform and New Story Leadership was that platform in 2017. I was a participant and as part of the program, I worked with Congressman Jared Polis, who is now the governor of Colorado. And as a participant, it opened my eyes about how much our voices are missing in the political discourse. And a year later, I had to come back and work with the organization to make sure that our impact is amplified and their voices expanded. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I got involved. Um, I find it fascinating. You mentioned a few things that I think would be great to kind of reflect on a little bit more, but maybe um, for just a background for our listeners, could you define what Area C is and how is it mm -hmm. different from other, you know, AB areas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Area C means it's basically a t when uh, the Oslo Accords happened between the PLO and the Israeli government, the West Bank territory was divided into three different parts, and each one had different levels of jurisdiction, governance, and control. 
Area A, areas that are called areas A are the major cities in Palestine. So that's where Ramallah and Nablus and Bethlehem and Janine, um, and they're under the control of the Palestinian Authority. Areas B are jointly administered and area C are completely under the control of the Israeli army, which means that the Palestinian Authority has no jurisdiction in my village or other villages that are a part of area C which is about 70% of the West Bank. And to give it, to personalize that experience, it means that if, when I, if I ever need 911 or an ambulance or any kind of help from my own government, they're not allowed to enter or cross. And instead we're patrolled and controlled by an army who sees our existence as a security threat. Um, so there are lots of clashes that happen, arrests, midnight, patrols and searches on my own house. Uh, the army continuously go to our rooftop. Um, so it's a very degrading, I think, experience living in Area C of the West Bank. And there's a lot of trauma and PTSD associated because of that daily encounter. And although areas A and B are partly or completely controlled by the Palestinian Authority, the fact of the matter is, when the Israeli army wants to go into any place, any city, regardless of that territory, they just do that. But that's in a nutshell, Area C. It's basically under the control of the Israeli army. You mentioned that you have family living there and how you noticed uh, after your brother's arrest that there is a kind of a, a, a choice to be silent and maybe a use of a choice is a wrong word because as you said, the occupation is causing silence and lack of activism. So could you kind of reflect on how heresies are connected or resulting in this fear of activism in this kind of silence that is being imposed due to the occupation about their experiences and, you know, kind of being silent uh, on their stories and sharing their stories with the world. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really important conversation that our community has has started having about the activism that uh, needs to be done, especially after uh, last May's events in Sheikh Jarrah that basically unified a lot of Palestinian mobilization. But specifically for Area C, I think because we, we experience so many daily encounters within the Israeli army, and they're scary encounters. Um, even just walking down the street, going to your school, there are Israeli soldiers with rifles that are this, your size. And that kind of experience creates a sense of fear and also a sense of hopelessness around, you know, even if I speak up, what's going to change? And I think for many years, that's been the sense of the Palestinian community. Um, and on the flip side of it, because we do not have access or we aren't, we don't have access within the Palestinian authorities responsibility towards our, our community. Um, there's also a sad story around the PA's failures in providing services and access to individuals in Area C and lots of incidents where Palestinians in Area C who are, you know, who encounter violence by Israeli soldiers and don't see their government standing up and protecting them. And even at times seeing the Palestinian Authority themselves do the oppression with arresting political activists. So 
we experience institutional oppression from both sides. And that makes it really hard to feel like your voice matters and that your voice needs to be heard. And you can magnify that by the international community, right? And a lot of the time seeing settlements expansions going left and right without real condemnation from the international community around that. So I think the gap within our community is seeing that speaking up will actually make a difference. And it has started to change because we saw with the activism in Sheikh Jarrah that actually their voices were heard across social media and different platforms. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I feel like Palestinians, regardless of their location, they're still, you know, you, Area C, of course, has its uh, unique context because of the PA, the, the Israeli occupation, the presence of military. And I am by no means going to compare my situation to that situation. Um, I grew up in Um al Faham. I don't know if I told you this. Mm. And even though, you know, in theory, we should have the protection of Israeli law since we are Israeli mm -hmm. citizens, right? There's also still this, this fear of being politically active because yeah. of, you know, repression, because of targeted imprisonment of people, regardless of their citizens or not. And also because of the memory of what happened under military rule um, in the 60s, you know, after Israel became a state and then it lasted, the military rule lasted, I think, until 1965 or something like that. But also mm -hmm. that memory is still alive and it's passed on. I remember my dad saying, don't study political science. There is nothing for you to do in politics, especially as a woman, like, you know, they, they were afraid of this engagement. And I think kind of unify the experience of Palestinians regardless of where they are and regardless of the institutional context because it's still all oppressive right in varying degrees mm. yeah absolutely um absolutely it's it's something that I think you know for myself I spent the first few years of my life like I grew up in Brooklyn New York and even in Brooklyn New York you know outside right of the conflict my parents were very apolitical. And especially after the tragedy of 9-11 and the huge wave of Islamophobia that hit the Muslim American community in New York and across the United States, it kind of, it showed me through those experiences of seeing my parents really afraid of even just talking about it. You know, my dad was a construction worker in uh, Manhattan, right when 9-11 erupted, and yet he didn't feel like the victim. He felt like he was responsible somehow or his community was responsible. So it's a larger question of the Muslim community around the world around how we are portrayed and what happens when we are politically active. And I hope to create a new story where Palestinians and Israelis who are politically active don't have that antagonizing sense of fear, but actually feel safety in speaking up and sharing what they want their future to look like. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And this brings me to another question. When, we when we're talking about you know, politics of silence and um, push, kind of encouraging people to share their stories and giving them a platform where you're showing them that the stories matter, they do matter, they have an influence. Mm -hmm. So why are you doing both Israeli and Palestinian individuals to come and join your program and work 
uh, in DC and kind of have that experience in DC? Why is it important to have that partnership? Mm. Yeah, that's a very important question. I've studied conflicts around the world and social movements around the world. And one of the biggest, one of the biggest aspects of any successful nonviolent movement, political movement, social movement is the power of allyship. And I think in the context of Israel-Palestine, that allyship is not there. It barely exists. And to me, bringing Israelis and Palestinians who are already politically engaged or socially engaged within their communities to have the opportunity to explore what that allyship looks like and means together in a space that doesn't have checkpoints and a separation wall, but like outside of the conflict, that's where the real magic happens in them seeing each other as allies and partners and not just only doing that, you know, to eat hugs and hummus uh, and talk to each other, but bring those conversations within the political halls of power in the United States Congress. Um, I've, for the past four years, Anwar, the power of having an Israeli and a Palestinian group in the same room with a decision maker changes the game because it not only brings to light the issues that need to be addressed, it gives more credibility to both sides in the room. And I think that is why it's important and it's not to say that the um, that it's an equal platform or that the conflict is balanced. I mean, we can all see that it's not an imbalanced situation, but without building allies and without being partners and strategizing together, I don't see a way out of our conflicts. And so that's why I think it's important. Mm-hmm. And what do you think is the best um, the best trait or maybe who do you think can be the best ally? What can be, like, what should somebody who's interested in becoming an ally do Mm. to become an effective ally? Well, I think the, you know, being an ally, it's such an important conversation and it's been happening happening a lot in the United States with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, The number one thing is listening, like really listening. When building allyship for both sides, to be a good ally, the other side has to feel like you hear them and that you feel their pain and struggle and that you believe them. You know, believing the stories I think is really powerful and important. And then secondly, allyship comes with privilege, right? So if you are on the privileged side and you you can protest without getting arrested, you can speak up on social media, you can call your politician, and demand change and that's another piece to it it's one thing to just listen and it's another thing to be an active ally um and i would say the third part of allyship is understanding that it's an in-process relationship right like with new story leadership with our israeli and palestinian alumni when the may attacks happened there, it was a lot of pain, right? That both sides were feeling fear. We had Palestinian alumni who lost their family members and bombing in Gaza. And for allies to be there is also to understand that there's a grieving period that happens when we're in an active conflict. So having patience and in the relationship or in the allyship that you're trying to build, it won't always be easy. You know, the other side should be like, I just don't need, don't want to talk to you right now. Um, and I think that is something that I want to tell people is that it's it's in progress and you have to be patient with the other side 
especially when they're the vulnerable marginalized community going through um, systematic violence. So those would be my three tips. Yeah, thank you. I think these are great tips. I, I feel like um, the discussion in the US is very fruitful about you know uh, how to become a, 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 an ally and um, what does it mean to be an ally? And I think giving practical kind of guidance um, is essential to help guide you know the younger generation like my students always say we want to help but we don't know how mm -hmm. and how to best you know go about doing that without undermining the cause or taking over you know mm -hmm. uh, kind of reproducing power structures and the, the relationship between an ally and um, the, the marginalized group so I think that was great um so my next question is about you as a person. And I know you started kind of addressing parts of your story of how you decided to join the organization you're working for. But I also noticed that you have other projects that you're working on, that um, you do have a feminist consciousness, which is important, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how that ties to your work and to your passion, um, to what you're doing. Wow, it's a fundamental part of it. Um, I think, you know, for myself, before I even understood what feminism means, like I'm talking when I was like five or six, a lot of the times my family and my friends would say, you're so outspoken or you talk too much or, you know, comments that made me feel like I shouldn't be. And I think that's the conditional environment that a lot of young women in Palestine and Israel and around the world feel almost on a daily basis. So to me, my like feminist consciousness or, or me wanting to bring a feminist framework in the work that I do is understanding that we're about 52% of the population and barely have any representation politically, economically, socially. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done internally within the Palestinian community and internally within the Israeli community. And to tie that together, I think Palestinian and Israeli women are very unique as segments of the population because both sides understand or have an awareness of what it's like to be in a chauvinistic society or a patriarchal society or a patriarchal family network community. And there's a real common ground and a sense of I feel your pain that I have seen in the programs that I have launched, uh, focusing specifically on Palestinian Israeli women. And to me, that's just been so powerful. And, you know, to add on to that, you know, Palestinian and Israeli women don't have a, a seat at the table. You go to the PA Facebook page and the Israeli Knesset Facebook page, and it's primarily men, right? Like running the show, making the decisions. And I think to get that seat at the table, we need to find ways in which we can collaborate, unite, unite, work together and support each other and have access to those meetings. So I think that's where it matters to me. You know, I can give a short story about when I was still a participant in New Story Leadership in 2017, there was a hearing taking place in the United States Congress, and that hearing was to a hearing about cutting Palestinian aid. And in that hearing, there was several Congress members that wanted to ask experts questions about that impact. And the experts who 
were invited to speak on behalf of this issue were three men, two of them Israeli, one general and one former ambassador, and one uh, American man from Brookings. And an entire hour briefing took place about talking about the Palestinian community economy without a Palestinian present, without a woman present. And then they voted and the Palestinian uh, funding was cut. And I had a realization that if we were there, if we were the experts, if we were invited to those rooms, the outcome would be completely different. The decisions that would be made, the policies that would be formed, wouldn't be the ones that we see today where you just think, how did they think that that was going to help? Whether it's the Trump peace deal or any other foreign policy we see, the reason why it doesn't work is because our voices are missing and women's voices are missing. When peace processes have women representation in them, they're a lot more likely to succeed. And so I take that as the formula to make sure that there's agency for Palestinian and Israeli women to engage in this conflict and have a voice uh, with new story leadership, particularly with our She Leads program. Wow, amazing. And could you, you mentioned, you know, the She Leads program. Could you tell us more about that and maybe some anecdotes of successful stories or hopeful stories from the program? Mm, yeah. So She Leads was created in partnership with the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, and it's the first of its kind. It's a gender lens leadership program where we brought 20 Palestinian and Israeli women through a series of online programming focusing on a feminist framework and all of the issues that we discussed. And from those issues, it ranged from sexual harm and sexual safety, gender discrimination in the workplace, political representation, women in diplomacy. Um, so we really curated it to the feminist framework, and we address social, political, and economic issues that are facing the Palestinian and Israeli women that we recruited. And as part of that, we also held dialogue sessions where it, the theme was the personal is the political. And that comes from a feminist theory that our personal experiences shape the political moment that we face today. So when I, as a Palestinian woman, am in, a, in the workforce and my salary is 50% lower than that of my male counterpart, that is a personal story, but it's a product of the politics. And we try to connect and break down those personal experiences to the political issues that made them that way. So it was really powerful to, to connect the dots between the personal experiences and the political issues. And as part of it, we also connected them with incredible women mentors from around the world. Uh, they had a one hour session with Leima Gbawi, the Nobel Peace Prize laureate who ended the civil war in Liberia through a women-led multi-faith social movement that lasted for 13 years. And she had the opportunity to not only share her story, but give real practical advice because she did it <laughs> through like an incredible nonviolent revolution. She brought um, Muslim and Christian women to protest every day for 13 years until Charles, um, the dictator, 
met with them and they demanded an end to the conflict. Um, so that was a really powerful moment to see someone and connect with her and to see our she leaders asking her, like, how can we do it? What, how will you guide us? And just seeing their eagerness of creating their own social movements. Another really powerful um, experience that our she leaders had. So we launched in February of 2021 and by the time it was our third session, the tragedies of May erupted, right? That started in Sheikh Jarrah with residents having the fear uh, of losing their homes. And that created obviously rocket fire and a lot of violence and Arab Jewish communal fighting, lynching, Gazans being killed, Israelis being killed. And for one of our civil society, our she leaders group, we got an invitation to meet with the Biden's administration envoy. He was sent to Jerusalem to address what was going on and, and take notes and, and lead the US policy. And we were the only civil society group he met with. And it was a huge undertaking for our she leaders to one, be brave enough to come to the room and sit together during such a tragic and hard time, but also be heard and share their policy recommendations and demand a ceasefire coming from the US administration. Um, and we all know this, I mean, our futures are dictated by US foreign policy more so than our own government. So I think that was really powerful for them to really get a seat at the table and be heard through someone who has huge influence and political power. And I would say the last thing is the relationships, of course, that they built together. You know, these women are political activists. They're part of the Talat feminist movement and uh, the Israeli feminist movement as well. So just to see that they now have access to each other and can provide support, do projects together, is the reason why we do what we do to create the possibility of that allyship and see where it goes and support them along the way. That's amazing. Wow, to have that, you know, kind of opportunity to discuss that with, you know, the US leadership, even though I'm always skeptical about big changes in the leadership and its approach to the conflict, it is something definitely noteworthy and um, should be considered a success for sure. Um, so I wanted to ask you about your definition of what peace activism is and why is it important? Um, how do you, how do you eventually view kind of the end of the violence on the ground? Do you see your work directly tied to a, a permanent resolution to the violence? Hmm. Wow. That's such a big question, Anwar. <laughs> um, so to me, the answer to, you know, activism on the ground and the role that new story leadership plays within um, ending the violence. So one, I think activism is divided into two parts. One is the peace building part. That's where negotiation processes happen, dialogue happens, reaching across the aisle, having those hard conversations. So there's a peace building and the other side is the nonviolent action. That's where there's organizing, protests, social media campaigns, sit-ins, uh, demonstrations. And I think the key to Israeli-Palestinian peace and ending the violence is really harnessing the power of both 
and synergizing both. What we see nowadays is, a, is almost a complete disconnect between the people-to-people peace-building community and the nonviolent action community. And I think both are really powerful and needed, but we need to work together. So where New Story Leadership come in, we help create ties between the activism and the peace-building. And then we give those activists and those peace-builders access to the decision-makers in the United States and in Europe so that their momentum and their voices aren't just in the silos of the dialogue room, but they're expanding into the political circles. And I can give a story about that. Um, one of our Gazan participants, Mohammed, interned with a US Congress member, Donald Payne. And before um, Mohammed came into his office and I met with the chief of staff, and the Congress member a few times and they're like, you know, we don't really deal with foreign policy, but you know, we're open to learning. So this was a Congress member from New Jersey who had, who didn't really have an active role in Israel, Palestine or foreign policy in the Middle East. And throughout Mohammed's time in his office, he absolutely like fell in love with Mohammed and understood his experience as a Gazan. And one of the meeting, you know, one of the days the congressman asked Mohammed to come and take a meeting with him. And that meeting was with APAC, the uh, American Jewish lobby group. And, you know, the APAC lobbyist was, you know, saying the talking points of a pro-Israel security policy. And then the congressman told Mohammed, you know, as a Gazan, um, Mohammed, what do you think? And Mohammed had the opportunity to humanize the conflict, to talk about what it's like to be Gazan and what the consequences of the current U.S. policies towards Gazans mean for him and his family and his community. And the APAC lobbyist was surprised, like, how is a Gazan sitting with a congress member? And Today, if you look at Congressman Donald Payne's legislative history, what he votes on, the pieces he co-sponsors, they are across the board pro-Palestinian and pro-peace. And that is a Congress member who is one out of 435, but it's still important and it's powerful because it shows that, again, when we are in the rooms, when young Palestinians and Israelis are in the rooms, things change. And I think right now our scale is small because we're a small organization, but we're showing that this needs to be done. And this kind of engagement matters, connecting the peace building with the nonviolent action with the stakeholders in decision-making roles. That's amazing. I, I appreciate how much you use stories. You do believe in the power of stories. You teach about them and also you practice what you preach. I think that's <laughs> That's a good sign. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so my other question, um, do all this work, you've been telling us a very hopeful story about peaceful activism and peace activism and its influence on policymakers. I wanted to take us to the challenges side, right? To, to, mm. to look like less optimistic side. Um, what kind of challenges have you faced or, or are you facing today related to your work, personal challenges, professional challenges? And usually I like to share these challenges with our listeners because you know sometimes people are afraid to engage in activism, especially when it comes to Israel-Palestine for a variety of reasons, right? And I figured that a person like you sharing these stories would be powerful and also maybe talk about how you address these challenges. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, all of your questions are great. So 
the challenges. I mean, one thing that I can say about the Palestinian community and the Israeli community, especially as it relates to our kind of work, is the cynicism that exists and a sense that, you know, what you're doing doesn't, won't change anything and that sense of uh, hopelessness. Um, and that, that is a huge part of our psyche. And with the participants that I work with, it comes up. So part of the challenge is addressing the cynicism, but also working towards seeing that light and that positivity so that the activism doesn't die out. I think one challenge that I have seen within our community is thousands of Palestinians and Israelis engage in our kinds of programming. And then afterwards, they don't feel a supportive or a strong enough network. And then they just go about and live their lives. And without our ability to harness this powerful network, the impact stagnates. So that's one challenge. And then the other is when reality hits the fan, I like to say, you know, within our kinds of work, Palestinians and Israelis spend an incredible seven weeks in Washington, D.C., and then they go back home. And for the Palestinians, they go back to the occupation. They go back to the siege in Gaza. They go back to the same political reality that they left behind. And those systems, the political ones, are still in place. And so there's a sense of, I just did this program. I put my heart out. I put all my work in. And I still have to wait for two hours on a checkpoint with the hopes that I will live the next day. And I think that is really hard to, to, to just keep their momentum alive and their activism alive. And it doesn't always work. You know, some of our alums are just like, I don't see a difference because we have these huge systems. You know, what I like to do in my way of uh, framing it is continuously providing a platform for our alumni um, in May, during the during the attacks and the tragedy that happened, I asked our alumni group, would you be willing to come together and speak your truth and demand a ceasefire to congressional offices? And about 30 or so said, absolutely, yes. And so we organized a series of congressional meetings. And one of those meetings was, was, was with a member called uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin. And after he heard those stories, he said, send me the stories. I'm going to say them on the house floor and record them so that everyone can hear these and understand what's happening. And throughout, not just Congressman Jamie Raskin reading our alumni stories on the house floor, but almost every meeting we had from Chuck Schumer to Speaker Nancy Pelosi, they said that we were the first Israelis and Palestinians that they had met with. So to me, I address it by continuously giving them uh, opportunities for empowerment and opportunities to voice their political issues and priorities. Another challenge, I guess I can now talk more about like my personal challenges within being in this field and doing this work. So I'm a 26 year old Palestinian woman and I'm often the only Palestinian, the only woman the only under 30 in many of the rooms that I'm in. And a lot of times there's a sense of, oh, you know, what do you know? You're too young or you're too this or you're too that. Um, and I often, you know, find myself having to prove myself and work twice as hard than what, some, what a male counterpart would need to do. So obviously there are times where I feel burnout, where I feel 
Like, why am I the only one? And when I am the only one in those rooms, there's the question, am I the Palestinian token in the room? And the way that I work through it within myself is if I am not like, to me, I want to be in those rooms so that 25 other Palestinian women or Israeli women or Palestinians and Israelis get access to that room. Um, but it's a hard process, right? Because that we're not there yet. <laughs> and there are many rooms where I'm not in, right? Or any Palestinian. Um, so that can be very challenging. And then I think finally a personal challenge, you know, there's a there's a normalization movement within Palestine, within the um, Muslim American and the Muslim community at large, who see that my kind of activism and my kind of engagement with Israelis is counterproductive, is, is wrong, like blatantly wrong. And I have been exposed to, or I've had hate comments, even by the BDS movement, hate comments about the work that I'm doing, or if I'm presenting at a conference like the J Street conference. And that's really hard and painful because one, I think every Palestinian, young Palestinian should have the chance and opportunity to do the activism that he or she feels right to the, to her or him or them. And if we're hating on each other, then we're not really making room for the unity that we one day dream to have within our own country. But it is a challenge when you have people that just don't agree with your kind of work and then go out to attack you for it as well. Wow, thank you for sharing that. That's a very important point to highlight. I always think about it this way. We all have the same goal in mind. We all want to achieve just and peaceful resolution to the issues on the ground, to get our Palestinian community and towns and cities and families to prosper and live in a democratic, um, inclusive state without the fear of violence, right? Um, yeah. We maybe disagree on the method and that's okay. <laughs> and we shouldn't alienate each other because we disagree on the best approach to doing so. And, and, and you make a great point that um, if we can't really allow room for understanding of other methods that are still peaceful, that have the same you know, uh, goal in mind, how can we actually become an inclusive society when we do have a state? Um, right. And that's a great point to reflect on. Now I wanna end with a question about how, what kind of advice do you have for young activists who are just kind of starting to think about becoming politically active or what kind of advice would you give your younger self if you get the chance to meet her? <laughs> wow. Um, to the young activists who are listening, um, I would say your story matters. Your story has power and your story really has the power to shift and change things. We just have to say it and speak it in all of the platforms that we have the opportunity to do so and fight for platforms to open up if they don't do so already. You know, I've seen conversations, policy changes that I didn't think would be possible within the political framework in the United States around Israel-Palestine. And I really want young activists to know that the tide is shifting in our favor. You know, there are conversations that are happening about the occupation about the oppressive systems that are in place both within the PA and also within the Israeli army. And that's new. 
you know, five years ago, no one would be speaking about it. And now people are, and it's thanks to the activism of young people like all of you. So don't give up, be heard, and also be strategic. I always say, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And when we want to advocate for our policies or the future that we want to see, we have to be strategic in how we frame it. And we have to understand that allyship is important. I know I said this in the beginning, but it really is within every movement without having um, a strong allyship, having a solution wasn't possible, whether that was the African-American civil rights movement, whether that was in Liberia or Ireland and Northern Ireland. And allies do exist. They are on the other side. We just have to open our hearts to see and hear them. Um, And then, you know, to my younger self, I would say you're worthy of being heard. Um, I mean, this is something that I've learned about myself and probably I'd want our listeners is don't be too hard on yourself and give yourself the same empathy and security and safety in how you engage with your work. And also just know when you need to take a break, take that break (laughs) Um, because self-care is really important, especially for activism and activists on the ground. Uh, Burnout is a real thing. And if we're not strong and energetic and ready to do the work, um, things don't happen. So we need to have really good self-care. That's a great advice. And I think um, there's this quote by Audre Lorde that I really like, um, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it's self-preservation and Mm. then act of political warfare. I think that's a, you know, great quote to sum up your advice. Yeah, I love it. All right. Thank you, Rowan, very much uh, for, um, you know, talking with us today and again, sharing your story. And I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy this conversation as much as I did and learn a lot from it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'll say if you want to get involved with New Story Leadership, check out our website at newstoryleadership.org. And if you're curious and interested about the power of synergizing nonviolent action with peace building, there's a guide called the SNAP Guide available at the United States Institute of Peace website, where you can have access to a course that walks you through why this uh, type of activism and synergies is important. Wow, thank you very much for uh, the resource. Um, And yeah, I encourage our listeners to definitely go check them out. Thank you, Rowan, and hopefully we'll meet at some point in person. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.